Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. Give ear to God's word. It says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Well, since we're sort of jumping into the middle of a book and a short passage, this is the section of of Philippians, this part of the letter where Paul is giving his instructions, the application you might call it. He always preaches the gospel, gives the gospel, teaches about the gospel of Christ, and then he gives us instructions on how to live in light of that, how we are to live in light of God's mercies. And back in chapter 1, uh, verse 27, he talks about how to let your, your life, your manner of life, be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, he's not, when he says worthy, he's not saying that we earn salvation or anything like that. He's just saying he wants our life, the way we live, to match up with the grace we have received, to be consistent with the grace we have received through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here in chapter 4, verse 1, he talks about standing firm in the Lord. And so this... The part that we're reading in chapter 4 is is an expansion of that. Here is part of what it means to stand firm in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in verse 4, what does he say there? We started to read that. He says, rejoice in the Lord when? Always. That's a tall task. Rejoice in the Lord always. And then here in the verses that we're looking at, verses 6 and 7, in verse 6 he says, do not be anxious about Anything. So he's saying rejoice always, rejoice in the Lord rather, always, and do not be anxious for about anything. I don't know about you, but when I read that, I I see those things as polar opposites. You can be rejoicing in the Lord always, or you can be anxious. It seems like those two things kind of, they're mutually exclusive. You can be rejoicing or you can be anxious. Anxiety is the polar opposite of rejoicing in the Lord and vice versa. It's hard to rejoice in the Lord when you're anxious, and I hope it's hard to be anxious when you're rejoicing in the Lord, or at least it makes it much easier to not be anxious when you're rejoicing in Christ. Well, here in verses 6 through 7, what I'd like us to look at this morning, Paul gives us what I think is the the Bible's solution to anxiety or worry. And what's that solution? Not a trick question. He says, pray. You know, I can remember years ago when my Bible college days when I was attending Christian Heritage, now at San Diego Christian College, we had a lot of counseling and psychology, Christian psychology classes. And I remember our, our main textbook, I forget what the book was called. It was like Christian Psychology 101 or something. And I won't name the, the people that wrote it because it would be embarrassing, I, w- I would hope, to them. But uh, I remember they had a chapter on, on anxiety. And the chapter on anxiety, and this is a Christian book, I kid you not, it had, uh, you know, tips for how to overcome anxiety. And it had things like hum a tune and think positive thoughts. And if you ever had a textbook, sometimes they'll have, you know, a little gray shadow box at the bottom of the, of the page. You know, like a, it's almost like a footnote, but it looks fancier, you know. And at the bottom of this section, what do you think it said in the little box footnote? Oh, and you can pray. It had all these things you could do to, to fight off anxiety and worry and then it's like, if all else fails, if humming a tune fails, this isn't how they wrote it, but it's how I took it, right? I'm sarcastic. But if, if, if humming a tune doesn't work, and if all these things don't work, I guess you could pray. 
And I was like, this is a Christian book. The first thing it should have said was Philippians 4, 6-7. Don't be anxious, and how do you do that? You pray. You pray with thanksgiving and all these things as we're going to see. And so Paul's solution is not don't worry, be happy. It's don't worry, pray. We all have things we worry about, right? There's nobody here that can honestly look, you know, raise their hand and say, I, I never worry. Never, I don't even know, I don't even know what that means. Y'all talk about it, but I don't know what that means. We, we are people of that worry. And yet Paul says, pray. So I want to look at three things from our text this morning. The first thing is the problem of anxiety or worry. The second thing is the power of prayer. And the third thing is the promise of prayer. So the problem of anxiety, the power of prayer, and the promise of prayer. So the first thing there is the problem of anxiety. Verse 6, Paul says, Do not be anxious about anything, or more literally, be anxious for nothing, as the New American Standard puts it. To many of us, uh, you know, if we're honest, you know, when I walk, when we see each other on Sunday mornings or sometime other than this, how are you doing? Uh, if you're smart, you say what, what Gertie does and say, better than I deserve, and how are you? But what do we usually say? Fine. You know, everything's good. Sometimes I'll say no justifiable complaints. We don't usually say that we're, we don't want to tell people we're worried, especially if they know we're Christians. We don't want to admit that we have anxiety or concern because we're supposed to be perfect and, and super people and all this. But, uh, you know, we, the fact that Paul even has to say it, be anxious for nothing, implies what? He knows from experience we worry. We do have anxiety. We have plenty of things. We are prone to anxiety and worry. And I don't think, at least for my own sake, it doesn't take much to make us anxious. It doesn't take a whole lot. John Calvin comments on this verse and he says, we are not made of iron so as to be unshaken by temptations. Maybe you think Calvin was made of iron. Maybe you think Paul was made of iron. They're just like us. They're just like you and like me. And Calvin's right, we're not made of iron. We are weak. We are prone to temptation to to anxiety. Now, we might be tempted to think that Paul, you know, maybe Paul knew nothing of anxiety because he was an apostle, therefore he had no problems. I think we'd be mistaken. Think about all the things that Paul suffered in his ministry. I won't read through the list of them as he does in Second Corinthians, but think about all the things he suffered. In fact, where was Paul when he wrote Philippians? Prison. It's, it's one of, we call them the prison epistles. Paul's writing letters. He's still serving and ministering to Christ's church from a prison cell. That's what makes Philippians such an amazing book. He talks about joy all through the book. He talks about rejoice in the Lord always. Imagine getting that letter. You know, if you knew a pastor or a missionary who was in prison for the gospel somewhere and, you know, pick a, a country that does that. There's a lot of them. And we were to get a letter and I was to read it to the, to the congregation and it's telling you, Rejoice. You're thinking, well, this guy's in prison. He's rejoicing in Christ. I guess maybe we can do that too. That's where Paul was. Paul was in prison when he wrote this epistle. Now, you know, perhaps if you think of it, maybe his own temptations to anxiety are part of the reason that Paul was such a man of prayer. Every, every epistle he writes, he seems to mention to whoever he's writing to, whatever church or individual, he prays for them always. He prays for them without ceasing. And we know that Paul himself tells us he had anxiety about things. One of the things Paul worried about in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, in that chapter he's giving his, kind of sarcastically so to speak, his qualifications for ministry. There were people that were opposing him 
And he, he nicknamed them super apostles. They were fake apostles, but they were, they were trying to make him look bad and, and, and kind of elevate themselves. So what does Paul do? Paul says, you want my qualifications? I'll give you my qualifications. I was beaten, shipwrecked, stoned, all this for the gospel. What, what have they done for the gospel? But one of the things he mentions is in verse 28 of 2 Corinthians 11, he mentions at the end of that long, long list of things he suffered, he says, anxiety for all the churches. What? Think about that. All the things that weighed on Paul's mind, all the things he suffered, and one of the things that caused him suffering and anxiety was the state of the churches he ministered to. Maybe it's because he was in jail, you know, so often, that he wasn't able to be there in person. So he, what did he do? He prayed. Paul can pray. If you're in a jail cell for the gospel, you can still pray for God's people, and that's what he did. So Paul here is presupposing, with, with good reason, that there's going to be plenty of temptation for us as Christians to be anxious and to worry. So when he says be anxious for nothing, these aren't empty words. He knows that this is something we will have to deal with. That, you know, there's a hymn we sing, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the Lord, the God I love. We're also prone to anxiety, if we're honest. Now the word for anxious here has the idea of your thoughts being disturbed and of your thoughts kind of being you know, abounding in a subject. You can't get your mind off whatever this subject, whatever this circumstance is. That's, that's what anxiety is about. You can't get your mind off something. It's constantly distracting you, weighing you down. Have you ever, what kinds of things have caused you to think that way? Probably plenty of things in this life. What kinds of things make you find yourself being anxious or worried? Money things? Money problems? Everybody has those. Circumstances in your life, your family, the state of our nation, the state of the visible church in our nation, political unrest. Am I making you anxious by listing all these things? <laughs> Apologize. Matthew chapter 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, Matthew six twenty-five to 27, he says, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? You might subtract a few hours from the span of your life by worry, but you won't add one. And notice, as this the, you know, I won't preach on the Sermon on the Mount right now, but if you read Matthew 5 through 7, what, you know, sometime, it's only three chapters. Read it maybe this afternoon or sometime when you can make the time. Notice how many times Jesus mentions God as your heavenly Father or your Father in heaven. That's the point. You know, he's not just saying God will take care of you. There's a hymn, God will take care of you. He's saying God, who's your heavenly Father, will take care of you. That's that's the reason we are not to be anxious for everything, because, because we have God as our Heavenly Father, and He is a much better Father than we are to our own children, and God certainly will take care of us. So, we, you know, we tend to worry about the details of our lives, about our material needs, and yet uh, we are to trust God, who is our Heavenly Father, who will take care of us. We have to learn to trust God and to pray. You know, even in the Lord's Prayer, that model prayer, that, that simple prayer that we pray every first Sunday, next Sunday, Lord willing, we will pray that together. What is one of the requests? Give us this day our daily bread. Your, your daily needs, your material needs, the things of this life, that 
They're in the Lord's Prayer. God knows we have those needs, and so he teaches us and trains us even to ask him for those things that we might not be anxious. And that leads us to the second point this morning, and that's the power of prayer. Now, what, I know that's an overused term sometimes. When you say the pow- If someone says to you, do you believe in the power of prayer, what are they really asking you? Is there some kind of inherent magical power in praying in general? No. It's, it's who you're praying to. You believe, you believe in God's willingness and power in answering prayer is what you're really saying when you say the power of prayer. And that's what I mean by that phrase this morning. Thankfully, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul doesn't just say stop worrying. Paul, Paul has a tendency by the Holy Spirit in the Scriptures to say put off this and put on this. Stop doing this and do this instead. He gives us positive instruction. He doesn't just say stop being anxious or stop worrying. He gives us the solution or the prescription for anxiety and worry, and that is obviously in our text prayer. Notice he, he contrasts the two, doesn't he? He contrasts anxiety and worry with prayer. In verse 6, look what he says there. Do not be anxious about anything but, or rather, you know, but in everything... By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Notice the, you know, the way he words these things. Be anxious about nothing, but in prayer about everything. All these superlatives in the text. Now, I, I always think from this text, uh, you know, if it's big enough to cause you worry, even if you think it's silly, even if you think you'd be embarrassed to tell somebody else you're worried about something, if it's big enough for you to worry, it's big enough for you to pray about. You can either be a, a worrier or a prayer warrior. Those two things are mutually exclusive. To pray, what is, what is it to pray? We all think we know what prayer is. If I were to ask you to give a definition of prayer, what would you say? You might have, if I ask ten people here, you might give me nine different uh, definitions. But, you know, to pray in this context is to, is to ask God for help. To ask God for help. To, to let your request be made known to God. Now, does God know what you need? Is Paul saying that you're giving God news that he doesn't already have or information? No, God knows our needs before we even pray. But praying here is to admit that we need God, that we're dependent upon God. Prayer is an expression of our dependence upon God, that we are not able to handle everything on our own. You know, when we don't pray... When I don't pray, when you don't pray, what are you really saying? I, I can handle this on my own. We have a much bigger picture or idea of what we think we can handle than we should. The things that we think we can handle on our own might be the things we need to pray for more. You've probably heard the old saying, I've heard it even this week, that God will never give you more than you can handle. Is that true? It's not true. If God never gave us more than we can handle, would we ever even pray? How many of us would even bother to pray? If you thought, I can handle X, Y, and Z, would you pray about X, Y, and Z, whatever it is? No, you'd say, I've got that. If something big comes along, God, then I'll, then I'll, I'll, I'll make it known to you and pray about it. Notice Paul says that we are to pray with what? With thanksgiving. Pray with thanksgiving. Pray about everything. And when you do, pray with thanksgiving. Why does Paul add that there? Why does the Bible so often link prayer with thankfulness? Because it does. It seems like every other passage where we're told to pray, it says, with thanksgiving, to make your requests be made known to God. Why do we have to pray 
and also give thanks to God in praying for our request. John Calvin is helpful here again. He says, because many often pray to God amiss with complaints or murmurings as though they had just ground for accusing him, while others cannot brook delay if he does not act immediately and to obey their wishes. Paul joins thanksgiving with prayers. Uh, it is as though he had said that those things that are necessary for us ought to be desired from the Lord in such a way that we nevertheless subject our affections to his will and give thanks while asking. And unquestionably, gratitude will have the effect upon us that the will of God will be the chief sum of our desires. In other words, it's an expression of trust in God. It's, it's, it's an expression of trust in God and in his perfect will that, Lord, I need this, I need help with this, but when you thank him, you're saying, I know that whatever you're going to do and answer is the best thing. It may not be the thing that I think you should do, but it's saying, I know that God knows what he is doing. And I know that God will do right, that God gives good gifts to his children. Prayer with thanksgiving is prayer that expresses trust in God's goodness and God's faithfulness as our Heavenly Father. It's prayer that trusts that God will answer for our good according to his will, even if we don't know yet what that good happens to be, or if we have a different view of what that good we think should be. The Apostle Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter 5, 6 through 7. He says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. He's reminding us who it is we're praying to. Humble yourself, yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, at the proper time, he may exalt you, casting your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. Peter's even telling us, God's timing might not be your timing. It might not be my timing. But his timing is better than our timing. At the proper time, God will answer and he says, casting all your anxieties or cares upon him because he cares for you. What does it mean? It means that you're to, you're to cast your anxieties, your worries, your cares, your concerns on God in the sure knowledge that God cares for you. You're to, it's, it's, it's a picture of unburdening yourself. You have a load on your back and you, you give it to God and let him carry it. Are you a Christian? Here's a question maybe you don't hear every Sunday, but are, are you a believer in Jesus Christ? I, I trust that, uh, I hope that all of you are. If, if you are a Christian, do you know that God cares for you? Not that, not, you know, we say things in general sometimes. You know, God cares for his children. God cares for, you know, God cares for all believers. God cares, if you're a Christian, God cares for you. You can cast your cares in him because he cares for you. Does that, does that knowledge amaze you the way that it should? It doesn't always amaze me the way that it should. That's a shocking statement to make, a short and shocking thing to say. To be able to, be able to say, God cares for me. God, the one who made all things by just speaking it into existence and sustains all things by his powerful word, the one who is in charge of all things, makes all things come to, to pass according to the counsel of his will, the one whose glory is above the heavens, the one who all creation expresses God's glory and, and, and pro proclaims his handiwork, he cares about you. As small as we are, as insignificant as we are, as sinful as we are, as prone as we are to, you know, we, Wesley always says, pray, you know, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. 
from the from the scripture passage where that's found. He cares about about you more than we admit. Psalm eight verses three to four. David had the same amazement. He says, "When I look at your heavens, remember, not just he doesn't just say when I look at the heavens, when I look up at the stars. He says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place." What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? It doesn't make any sense. I mean, God, I mean, God, is, God does not have a body like a picture. God putting the moon in its place—that's pretty powerful. And yet He cares for little nothings like, like us. If God cared for you enough, as sinful as you are, to send His Son Jesus Christ to die for your sins in, in your place and raised him up again for your justification. Surely you can trust him for the lesser things of this life. If God has given us his son, what does what Paul say in Romans? If he's given us his son, what else will he possibly withhold from us? Will he not also along with him give us what? All things. All things. That brings us to the third and the final thing in our, in our text, not just the power of prayer, but the, the promise of prayer. What does Paul say uh, and, and it's the word of God here in, in our text. What does he promise will happen when we pray and pray with thanksgiving? He says, he promises the very peace of God. Look at verse 7. And the peace of God, which does what? Surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So the promise that God's word gives us this morning is that when we pray, instead of being anxious, God gives us the opposite of anxiety. He gives us Peace, and not just any peace, the peace of God. Our closing hymn this morning is the old classic, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. Maybe the very first verse, maybe as soon as I start to read it, the rest of it will just pop in your mind. Maybe you've sung it so many times. It's what a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. Why? All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. How often do we not have peace because we just don't pray? We let ourselves get wrapped around the axle about something. I do it all the time. Instead of just stopping and saying, okay, I need to pray. I have a lot a lot to pray about. Have you ever forfeited peace because you didn't pray and carry your burden to God? James 4.2 says, we have not because we what? You have not because you ask not. A few things about this peace that Paul talks about in verse 7. The first thing is that, I hope it's the most obvious thing, but it's the most important thing. It's the peace of, of what? Whose peace is it? The peace of God. Where does this peace come from? The peace of God. You know, the world, the world offers us all kinds of fake peace, all kinds of counterfeit peace. You know, drugs and alcohol might numb the pain for a time, but they don't give peace. They don't really give lasting or true peace. Entertainment. Entertainment might distract you from the problems and your pain, but they don't give real peace. They don't give you the peace that lasts. Only God gives that kind of of peace. The second thing about this peace of God is, is it what? What does Paul describe it as? It's peace that surpasses all understanding. And it only does that because it's the peace of God, right? You know, all earthly forms and counterfeits of peace fall short sometimes. You know, sometimes when something comes into your life, we don't know what to say, 
We don't know what to do, and we don't even know what to think about it. Sometimes we, sometimes something comes into your life and you can't make sense out of anything. What is God doing? Why is this happening in my life? I don't know what to do. But God can give you the kind of peace that can't even be explained. It surpasses it. It goes above all understanding, is what he says. God can give you the true kind of peace of mind and heart. Even when it seems like everything's falling apart around you, God can give you peace. And that's a testimony. You think about Paul and Silas in the jail cell in Philippi. They've been beaten. They're put in, they're put in the center of the prison. Like there's, you know, outer, outer parts of the prison. They put them in the center part, put them in stocks. As if they're, like they're, they're worried they're going to break out. And what are Paul and Silas doing at midnight? Praying and singing hymns to God. That doesn't make sense to the world. You having peace despite what you're going through doesn't make sense to the world. And why is it? Because it's supernatural. The, the natural man does not receive the things of God, the things of the Spirit. Only the Holy Spirit, by the work of God, can give peace no matter what's happening around you. Only God can give you peace. It's beyond your ability to comprehend or even explain. God gives true peace. Even in the face of death, God can give real peace. The world doesn't know what to do with that. That's a testimony of the gospel to our neighbors. The third thing we're told about this peace of God is it will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That word guard is a military term. It's like an armed guard standing watch over your mind and your heart. God's peace guards or protects your heart, your heart and your mind. And, you know, we need, we need both of those things guarded, not just your emotions, not just your heart, but your mind as well. The heart and the mind, what does that stand for? It, it's, a, it's a Paul's way of saying everything about your inner person, your, your feelings, your thoughts, your intentions, your will, your affections, all of it. That's what God alone can guard no matter what's happening in your life. God's peace protects your heart and your mind. And in the last thing, and it might, might seem like Paul just kind of tacked it on. We, when we read the text, maybe you just kind of, you're so used to seeing this, these two words that we almost just kind of gloss over them and don't give them much thought. But Paul, the scripture doesn't work that way. Scripture doesn't just throw words in. There's no filler. Paul said everything he said for a reason. But what does he say about this piece? The last thing is that his peace will guard your hearts and minds in whom? In Christ Jesus. And the Lord Jesus Christ is the one in whom you have peace with God if you're a Christian. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. And in order to have the peace of God, you have to be at peace with God. That's really the key to the whole thing. Those last three words in the text is the key to the whole thing. You have to be at peace with God to have the peace of God. And so I have to ask, I have to ask this morning, are you at peace with God through Jesus Christ by faith in Him? Now the Bible says in Isaiah, there's no rest or no peace for the wicked. If you're outside of Christ, you might have temporary worldly peace. But you don't have real peace. You can't have real peace of God unless you have peace with God. If you are not at peace with God this morning, uh, you can be. All you have to do is repent of your sin and turn to God 
through faith in Jesus Christ. And you can be reconciled to God. You can be, you can know that you're at peace with the Holy God. And because you're at peace with the Holy God through faith in Jesus Christ, you can come to God anytime you need to and call upon Him as your Heavenly Father and know that He will give you the kind of peace that guards your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. When you're at peace with God, you also have the peace of God. You know, when you're not at peace with God, maybe maybe you weren't born and raised in the church, maybe you can remember a time when you weren't a Christian, maybe you were converted later in life. You know, when you're not at peace with God, you don't have peace at all. Every Everything that comes into your life, every negative thing, every trial, every uh, affliction that comes into your life is just another reminder of the wrath of God, isn't it? When anything happens, you, you jump. You're anxious with good reason. It's another reminder of the fact that you're not at peace with God. But when you are at peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ, you can know that even the very worst things of this life, the worst trials that, that come your way, come your way only through the hand of your Heavenly Father who loves and cares for you. And what does Romans 8.28 say? He makes all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. That will give you peace. Peace that doesn't make any sense to the world. No matter what comes into your life, you can know if you're at peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. He makes everything work together for your good. The Heidelberg Catechism puts it this way, even even for your salvation. It, it'll work towards your even to your glory in heaven. Nothing can take away from that. So may the God of peace teach us to pray. May he grant us his peace that surpasses all understanding, both now and always. Amen.